We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what we consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. Yet, there's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is McCormick Fona. I'm Corey Doucette, and welcome to our Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. It's human nature to make connections. We look for them in everything we do. We're social creatures, and we long for feedback, input, or just someone to sit by our side in silence just to have the company. Sometimes these connections are fleeting, but the result lasts a lifetime. Sometimes there are lifelong partnerships that yield many small discoveries. In the flavor industry, we look for these connections between tastes, between textures, and even between appearance. Today, we're talking connections in food, alcohol, and flavor with research chef Gabby Quintana and scientist Annalika Van Oy. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. Wonderful. Thank you, Corey. Yeah, great. Great to have you guys on the podcast today. We're going to start off like we always do. We're going to have you introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about what you do and how you came to McCormick. So, Chef Gabby, if you'd start for us, please. Gabby Quintana, Chef Mixologist here at McCormick & Company. I work over in the Hunt Valley uh, Technical Innovation Center. And how I got to McCormick is that I actually got a text message from uh, an old friend that I used to work with who used to have my position in the company. When he was retiring, he was like, would you like my job? I was like, I would love to. You got a great job for a great company. And so I decided, you know what? Those are some shoes I want to fill in. And when I started talking about connections, I didn't know I'd hit it right off the bat. Nice. Annalika, how about you? Annalika van Ooy, educated as food scientist in the Netherlands. Uh, long story short, via um, a product developer role in a beverage and a dairy company and working in a European flavor house, I took the jump over the ocean and landed at McCormick. And that's now five years ago. Wow, and I thought I had to travel far when I went from Massachusetts to Illinois. That's incredible. So why don't you guys go ahead and tell me about maybe a day in your life? What do you do on a day-to-day basis? We know it always changes, of course, but please, Annalika, if you'd start. So my role is to support our industrial customers. They are mostly product developers, working on a a product they want to launch in the market. Uh, That can be a process of one year, half a year. And we support them with flavors. So our flavors, they make the flavor. That's all the magic, all the love going into a very delicious flavor. And my role is to put that in a base. That could be a plant-based milk, an alcoholic drink, non-alcoholic drink, any beverage. And knowing, is it stable? Is it working well? Does it resonate with the fat levels? Um, How does it taste? How does it behave? And being that technical partner for our customers on the product, the beverage itself. Um, So a day for me could be running into the lab, going to the printer to get my recipes and start making beverages from scratch. Sometimes we develop beverages with or for customers and then adding the best flavors to it to make a proactive presentation, a nice concept and a lot of tastings. So we do definitely five, six tastings a day. Sometimes they are served at my desk. Sometimes we speak together in the lab, standing around the samples and discussing the samples. So making beverages, discussing with customers. We do video tastings. So yeah, a lot of tastings, fun, and you never know how the day ends. 
Amazing. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, with beverage, you know, every day, something different for you. And when you, when you are tasting these different tastings, do you do something in between to kind of, you know, clean, cleanse your palate, you know, clear your head, get your adjectives in order so you can discuss these? Yes. I have to be careful with my coffee <laughs> because after coffee, the tastings are not really reliable. Mm-hmm. For me, it helps to be in a silent room or at my desk when you can focus. But after doing it so many years, it's just tasting, focusing. I always have to swallow. I can't spit because then I miss something of the the release. And then discussing Mm -hmm. it with flavorists around me, colleagues around me, and they trigger good conversations. And then you retaste. What do they say? Do I pick up the same notes? So it's the whole collaboration to make a judgment about the flavor. What can we do better about this flavor? Does it work in this base? Do we have to tweak the base, etc.? That's amazing. I mean, I, I don't know how you guys keep that kind of stuff straight, you know, when it comes to like, oh, I just tasted this and now I'm switching over to that and I'm still going to be able to talk about this and figure out, you know, what's going to work best. That's incredible. So, Gabby, if, if you tell us about maybe a day in your life. So I'm one of those colleagues that uh, go up to the fourth floor and uh, taste with Annalika. And a lot of times when I do taste with Annalika, um, it's, it's, it's usually for uh, confirmation or just a lot of being able to collaborate on developing an actual item. For example, if they were working on a strawberry mojito, uh, does the strawberry taste the way it's supposed to taste, whether the customer wants it more candy or more fresh, whether they like a mint forward mojito or a mint background mojito, and just being able to talk about what the drink is and what the drink wants to be in the base along with the customer expectations and what the actual base is. Annalika is really, really, really creative and being able to translate something that I would be creating made with real strawberries, made with real mint, made with a million other culinary real food items and making them taste great in something that could very well be not the best tasting by itself, you know, uh, base. So... Again, being able to work with her and just talk to her about what the flavor needs might be so that as part of the actual flavor and drink development team, you know, we each give different value and different points of view on being able to create that perfect drink experience. So now we're talking about, you know, connections and working together. So obviously you two had to come to work together, come to connect. What's it like, I mean, for you to work together? What kind of, you know, work ethic do you do you both have? You know, what kind of partnership do you, you know, do you put forward? Is it, was it easy? Did you have to develop this partnership? I got to tell you, uh, do you want to talk first, Annalika? <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, I, I, it was love at first sight with Annalika for me. Uh, like, as soon as I met her, I was like, she, she, she was passionate about food. She loved talking about her work. She loved talking about her family. And, uh, you know, all those things are important to me, but she just had such great joy in being able to express her work through the beverages that she actually makes. That it was just a pleasure to work with her. So, you know, uh, every time I immediately grabbed um, her contact information and we just keep in touch whenever we see something cool. Not only that, we have a greater group chat in our work colleagues that also enjoy food, the foodies and the, uh, the drink enthusiasts that whenever they see something cool at the supermarket or they, whenever they see something cool or, again, if, if, if it gives you an emotion that's like, hey, I want to show this to somebody else, um, we're that somebody else to show each other to. 
that's nice that you guys can can share that kind of you know you're texting on the weekends like i'm usually texting my you know colleagues oh you know i saw this cool display at best buy or something but you know to to have a similar minded you know set of people that you can communicate with is it's it's very comforting i think yeah yeah so in a word yes it was very easy to work with Annalika. And for me, it started like I've always done culinary courses in my evening hours. And uh, in Belgium, we went when it was possible to very nice restaurants to get the culinary exposure. And then coming at McCormick, knowing we can work with chefs and meeting Chef Gabi and his colleagues, it was almost the honor to work as a technical food scientist with a chef and be influenced and, and inspired with everything he does. And especially being strong in technical, sometimes you miss that creative touch. So when we taste something and Gabi has, um, is talking about the product or what he's missing or wh- how he would fix a beverage to that next level of, of perfection, it triggers ideas in my mind. Uh, so for example, if he would say, I would add more layers into my beverage by adding some spices or extracts, it triggered me in, for example, a case with a peach bellini to add a, a flower note on top. Not that you taste it, but just flower flavors give some complexity. But if you don't taste it, it's it's not off-putting. And, and that's often the case. When Gabi comes to the lab, he has ideas. We talk about it, and it triggers more ideas on, on the technical end. And that's just lovely to have that at work instead of having mm-hmm. to go to restaurants on the, in the evening. Now, when you guys go to to the restaurants together, I mean, when I was a kid, um, and I've mentioned this several times on the podcast, my dad is a chef. We would go to you know Disney World or or these places, and everybody would be like, "What ride did you ride?" And I'd be like, "Well, we we went on this, but we went to this restaurant and we tried this food." And you know, people would be like, "That's that's ridiculous." But I I think I need to go to dinner with you guys so that we can have those discussions. I think. Tell me if you do this with your families. Do you guys sit around your tables and uh, try and guess what's in like a new food that you're eating and be like, oh, that tastes like this and that's what's in that? Because we used to do that all the time when I was a kid. It could be. I definitely, I am a lot in the kitchen and bake and experiment with the children and the family. Um, I would say going out with Chef Gabi is a whole different layer of experience. He takes you to up-and-coming restaurants, up-and-coming food outlets um, and just showing you how you can create delicious dishes without being fancy or without having that Michelin star. And that's not only one place. If you go with Gabi, he might take you to three, four, five places and you get a snapshot of each menu card. He's ordering a few recipes or a few dishes and you just eat some bites and, and it's all about talking and talking and what's in there and what do we like and why does it work and what's the pairing and, and that you bring that home to the lab and that's for the next presentation. It might be your starting point. So we've talked a little bit about mixology and what it takes to kind of create a flavor or, you know, create a mix. So how do we take, you know, the behind the scenes, the lab work and make it real? How do we make a prototype and how do we make a product out of this? Well, the easiest way to do that is to actually develop a prototype virtually while we're talking here. So let's talk about the peach bellini. A lot of the times when we develop product, the culinary end would be to develop what we call the gold standard or what we believe to be is the best food item that we actually, um, that best represents the flavor of whatever drink or food item that we're uh, developing. So being able to take fresh, delicious peaches, puree them, and then take 
great Prosecco and use that along with being able to give it to our product developers immediately so that you know you don't have a flat Bellini like you would experience it in a nice restaurant. So being able to have that experience and give it to the product developer and say, hey, this is what I believe to be the best peach Bellini I can create for you and have a nice conversation and being able to develop it using industrial products. And then with that beverage, Gabby is making that, that perfect Bellini, coming to the lab, tasting it with us colleagues. And then we start first talking about it. What do we taste? What do we see? Why is this the best Bellini? What kind of tweaks could you do in the restaurant if you would serve this? So sometimes he says, you can also serve it with a little bit of snaps in it, or I would take a different type of uh, peach puree. So that's all resonating. We taste it. And then we start technically measuring how sweet is it? What is the breaks of this product? How acid is it? And then I start thinking... If I translate this in a reasonable cost beverage, how much juice am I allowed to use? Can I use puree or is that sedimenting? So I take my assumptions, what, what's best for the beverage in the shelf life and the customer we are working for, and translate it in a, a matrix, a base, and then we start top-noting it at flavors, tasting together, adapting the acidity, um, choosing maybe a different wine base, etc., etc. I got to tell you, and after we do that first foray into actual product development, um, after the gold standard, that's, I think, when the brilliance of Analico comes through um, quite a bit. Because once you're there, then we can start talking about how do we make this unique? How do we make this like even better than a, a regular peach bellini? So now we're talking about, well, why don't we add a caramelized note to the peaches? Why don't we grill the peaches? And being able to, once again... Analika says that I inspire her, she inspires me, and we kind of have this great like circle uh, of energy that we can just, we end up with a product and then we keep building on it until we end up with an even better product in the end. So very, very cool. So creating that great product and, and staying with the Bellini or the peach example here, do you often have to wait for like in-season peaches, for example? So at, at, when we're creating gold standard, I try to make it so that you have in-season peaches. And I do cheat. I know certain foods and certain fruits are only good in certain seasons. So I, uh, we have a giant freezer. I, um, whenever I have an inkling of, I, I think that this fruit or this um, vegetable or whatever other item could be popular, but hard to get in a certain part of the season, I freeze them. Uh, we have a blast chiller here and we just freeze it. And so when I need it, I have it. Uh, so I, again, that's a little bit of a cheat. And certainly I wouldn't be able to serve a peach salad like that. But certainly if you have great peaches in the summer and frozen, it would still make a great drink afterwards. So. And Analika, do you have any kind of cheats like that when you're formulating and creating? Yes, I think the, the most important one is our flavorist and our analytical team. So those fresh peaches, uh, Gabi, is sourcing or those grilled ones he put on a beautiful grilling plate. We send them to our analytical lab. They analyze them. You get a HPLC out of it. And then our flavorists take that to the next version. They taste with us, see the, the outcome of the analytics, and then their brain starts to create the peach flavor very close to the original grilled peach cubby mates or the, the fresh one. So those flavors are my building blocks in the beverage. Um, without strong flavors, delicious flavors, I, I can't make any beverage. Um, and then 
the next layer would be to perfectionize the levels of the flavors, but also uh, in the example of the peach bellini, we, we were missing something on the wine notes. So we had a wine flavor in there, but playing with the acids, tannic acid, tartaric acid, not only citric acid, we felt like that helped the layering and make the beverage much more um, sophisticated, adult, uh, less straightforward. Well, as I said in grad school, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. So, you know, that's perfectly fine if it works out. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. So let's let's kind of move on. I, I always like to talk about what's next and what's, you know, in the future. So what kind of future are we seeing with, you know, mixology and beverages, whether they be alcohol or, I mean, maybe even non-alcoholic? I mean, can that is that on your radar as well? Let's Let's talk about that, if one of you would be so kind to start. Well, what I'm seeing uh, in the future, uh, I think, as far as cocktails go, is uh, is that cocktails, when when you're in a social setting, there are a couple of different camps that live in a cocktail world where people want to enjoy something that tastes good but has alcohol in it, and people that want to enjoy something good in a social setting carrying a drink but not necessarily have alcohol in it. So, uh, again, those two different camps are, are living in a golden era, I got to tell you. Um, being able to, like, if this were 10 years ago, there is no way that you would be able to carry a great-tasting non-alcoholic drink like you would today uh, with the same proliferation and the same enjoyment of that drink like you do today. And I can see that in the future, uh, there would be even more choices like that because, again, Alcoholic or non-alcoholic, a great tasting drink is a great tasting drink. So whatever that choice or whatever that lifestyle uh, you choose to do, or even if you just don't feel like having alcohol that day, um, I think would be having a great and tasty choice is what I see the future is. And then what we also see is the the low alcohol. So just not a mocktail, but 2-3% of alcohol that you can have a couple of drinks without feeling drunk at the end of the, the evening. Technically, that makes it much easier to make a delicious drink because the little bit of alcohol boosts a lot of flavor notes and complexity. Um, so that's a nice way of, we have been working a lot on mocktails. We have been working a lot of alcoholic drinks and now we play in that space in between and that has the, the beauty of both product categories. Now, Gabby, you kind of mentioned this is the golden era for, for these kinds of drinks. Um, and you said there are two different camps. What's what's pushing this golden era? Who's making these decisions that, you know, this is what people want? I mean, is it the the traditional, you know, or maybe not traditional, but is it the, you know, the market factor that everybody's after? Is it the millennials? Who What's going on? I think it's it's a matter of what's pushing this, I think, is a matter of choice. When people see choices, they choose if they don't have too many choices they they kind of stick to the same thing what they know the nice thing about now is that yes being able to choose between alcoholic full a low alcohol and no alcohol is actually spectacular especially because you know some evenings you um especially if you were to do like say a nightcap where you want a little bit of a stronger drink that's your choice it's there and you have great choice uh great flavor choices for that but if you want, if you are in the sun and you know you're going to be enjoying alcoholic beverages for a while, there is such a thing as sessionability where you are able to sit there, have a few drinks, and not be 
too buzzed to to function within that social setting. Uh, I think relieving a lot of the social anxiety that might occur when you're like, well, I can only have one or two drinks because I'm just a lightweight or I just don't enjoy the feeling of being inebriated. And that's okay, either switching to water or switching to a great tasty beverage that has low alcohol. And if you find something you like, you know, it's really nice to have a low alcohol beverage that you can just keep going back to. When you're creating a lot of these beverages that uh, Annalika and I do, um, it really is to give more choice to the consumer. Hopefully, uh, the flavors are great enough that we become a choice that you do often. But I got to tell you, being able to be part of the choice and being able to be selected as just you know one of the great flavors that are there, um, I think is the end result anyway, because I, and I don't want to speak for Annalika, but I'm sure she feels this way, that we want the consumer to have a great experience when they drink this. They're like, oh man, this is a, not only is this remind me of whatever flavor uh, is printed on the bottle or the can, but it's really convenient. I don't have to get 16 ingredients to make this cocktail. I don't have to, uh, you know, get certain brands to make sure that it tastes this way. This is already here. It's supremely convenient, and I can just crack it open, and I can just enjoy what I'm enjoying uh, anyway, which is the social setting. Now, what I'm remembering about, like, non-alcoholic beverages, you know, and it's granted it's been a while since I've had any of those, is that, you know, the running gag was like, you know, the, the taste was off or the taste was not there. You know, Annalika, can you tell me how you kind of combat that, like, when you're trying to make these delicious, like, drinks that people are going back to again and again? I think it's an evolution which is already ongoing for over 10 years in the industry that beverage developers are working on non-alcoholic beers, non-alcoholic drinks. Depending on the region, there's a lot of work already be done. And it's a combination of working on the beverage itself and then top-noting it with the right flavors. So for example, if we talk about whiskey, we have a whole whiskey kit, we call it, with all the top notes so almost deconstruct a whiskey flavor with a smoky note, a bourbon note, a woody note, an oak note. And, and let's say you have 10 tools which are part of whiskey. And depending on your base, you lift the ratio of one or two to make it more complex. But of course, the base, if you just use a soda base with citric acid and, and sugar, it will never taste like whiskey. So it's playing with nuances, sometimes adding a hint of tea or adding a be played with uh, barley ingredients to to have some darkness in the base and then top noting it with the whiskey kit. And of course, if you can make a whiskey sour, then it's also playing with your best lemon flavors. If we are allowed to add a hint of lemon juice, juice always helps to make a beverage more sophisticated. So it's really playing the, the balance between all the ingredients of the beverage and, and the flavor. And then, of course, when Gabi comes in, he will feed us with different whiskey brands and sources. So it's you can imagine this is the whiskey, what I think is the best standard. But if you taste 10 different whiskeys from different regions with Chef Gabi, and he is pinpointing you to certain notes, that triggers maybe new ideas that he says this note might be unbalanced in this whiskey, but if you put it in a non-alcoholic whiskey sour, it just gives the kick you are missing. So it's understanding the raw materials, the, the alcoholic materials which you cannot use, and just starting to play to make the puzzle work. And that might take a lot of time, but I think the whole beverage industry is working on to crack the code, but it's, it's, a, it's an art, it's a skill. 
uh, with a lot of technical knowledge behind it. A lot of trial and error, perhaps. So when making these, you know, these mixes or these flavors, are there any difficult ingredients that are required, but you kind of have to not hide, but cover up or change a little? Yeah, I mean, there are some things that need some makeup. You know, you need to put a little lipstick, a little blush, a little eyeliner. That's fine. And certainly I know the most difficult ones, that, at least from a culinary standard, is where the gold standard for it is actually starts off as a powder or starts off as a very healthy item. For example, high-protein drinks are notoriously difficult to actually work with. Drinks with a certain types of ingredients that need to be in there for for actual nutraceutical purposes in order to meet a claim. And again, being able to work with the base and the items and ingredients that need to be in there and work with that base so that you end up with a great tasting item without overpoweringly masking the item, I think is, again, it's one of those more difficult parts of our job. I would approach this as if the base is difficult, taste the base very seriously with a couple of colleagues and thinking about how can we make it better. Uh, so masking something or smoothening something out, let's say a protein base with, with some cream flavors, not containing cream, but cream directional. But ideally with bitter notes, for example, it's, it's the best to add a grapefruit flavor on top of it. So really think about this has some off notes, but if you work with off notes, maybe you can make a kind of Negroni out of it because there are bitters in there and we accentuate them with some herbal notes. Um, Another way is McCormick is known for its herbs and spices. Then you can add spices to a plant-based drink like cinnamon that gives some sweetness, some lasting. So if you have any aftertaste or long-lasting negatives, spices, ginger, cinnamon, all the chai spices, they will stay longer in your mouth and they are almost smoothening out any of the off notes. It's not magic, but it's definitely helping any base to to overcome some of the off notes. Amazing. I mean, you say it's not magic, but you guys sound like wizards to me. So another trend that I've been seeing uh, quite a bit is that there is a much more tolerable environment for bitter flavors, things that would normally be unacceptable, um, again, like just 10, 15 years ago, that would be much more sought after now. And not only that, those bitter flavors actually give a lot of sophistication and a lot of complexity to a drink. Things like Amaro, things that give a citrus and bitter note to a drink that would otherwise be rather boring, I think is a great development on the consumer palate and acceptability. So being able to develop against an actual, like what would be viewed as a difficult or an actual unpleasant flavor suddenly becomes something that's celebrated and is really nice. So having a whole new palette to work with is really refreshing as a chef and a mixologist. So when we opened up a lot of these palettes of flavor in the bitter camp, we started seeing a lot of gin and a lot of amaro and a lot of bitters be used in drinks and become acceptable. So we started working on Negronis as our example. And being able to work with actual amaro and being able to work with actual gin actually makes my job quite a bit easier because not only are there standardized ingredients, they are really easy to work with. You can just mix them together. 
but it's when those actual items become non-alcoholic that I need a lot of help. So that's when I turn to Analika. So Analika, if you could tell us what's happening there. Yeah, I think, first of all, we collected a lot of knowledge by working on Negronis itself, working with different vermouth flavors, getting the nuances of different vermouth brands, because you think you know vermouth, and then if you start to taste five different vermouth brands from the market and translate those to five different flavors, you have a whole different palette to play with. The same for the, the Amaros, the gins. There are so many gins out there. So playing with flavors which have, which have different juniper berry notes, different herbal notes, gives already a toolbox of, let's say, 20 plus flavors to play with. And then for a no-groni, we have at least a lot of flavors to play with, and it's getting that balance right between how much herbal can you have to get complexity. Are we maybe allowed to use a little bit of juice? So we have been working on a blood orange no-groni, lemon no-groni, some sophisticated citrus no-gronis. Really playing with juice helps to lift a beverage. What is the right sweetness level? Uh, working on some acidity and then definitely playing with the juniper berry notes and the herbal notes. It's definitely not an easy one. Sometimes we want to have some kick in the in the back, so that could be a, an alcohol enhancer or even some some heat. But it's a very fine line to say this is a reasonable no-groni or this is a wow no-groni. And of course, that's we can have a judgment, but our customers, of course, are the final judge. So we can just propose the best options and really give them choice in this is more sweet forward, this is more herbal forward, this is more gin forward, and then the customer would pick the best direction because that's very personal and project dependent as well. All right, great. We've talked a little bit about trends and you know what people are looking for as far as bitter goes. Do you see any other trends on the horizon? I mean, it's been an ongoing trend, but being able to use seltzer as a platform not only because of its recognizability but also because for a lot of younger drinkers uh, the gen zers out there or the younger millennials out there actually seltzer is their first drink that they know and recognize as a drink experience so being able to be competent and uh, a first choice in that category is a big big deal but being that it's a very ubiquitous category, being able to stick out in the seltzer category is also one of the challenges that we have to actually overcome. So, you know, being able to add different base notes into the seltzer or using different bases into the seltzer is actually a big deal. So if you're used to just a plain seltzer, why not try out different bases like sake, like other exotic drinks that might be, uh, you know, again, a nice first choice for someone who would be experiencing seltzers. I think my first seltzer was actually at the beginning of the summer. And that probably tells you my age because I wasn't, you know, hit right away with the seltzer craze. But I, I tried a White Claw and a Truly. And, uh, you know, I, I got to say, like, I was expecting the traditional, like, you get the you get the fruit note, but you don't get any of the sweetness. And I was pleasantly surprised. And I, I might be a little late to the party, but I think that's my my next set of purchases right there when it comes to beverages, alcoholic beverages. And that's what we see in the seltzer space. We have been working for years on, on hard seltzers uh, and also non-hard seltzers, which is technically one of the hardest products to work with because there is nothing to lift the flavors. So the flavors has been have to be very good from itself, very fruity, very 
full because there is nothing to boost the juiciness or the sweetness of a flavor. But now customers are expanding all the ranges of a little bit sweet or a little bit juice to a seltzer or instead of malt base, vodka base, like Gabi said, sake base, wine base. So the sky is the limit to play with the seltzer space. And that makes the drink already sophisticated and much more interesting to flavor versus where we came from, let's say a couple of years ago. But definitely a very challenging flavor category. And our flavorists really have some tricks and, and beautiful flavor experience to, to make it work. Because if a flavor works on hard seltzer, I always say it works on any base. Great. Well, we've reached the point in our podcast where we ask for your takeaways. So this is kind of the end of the podcast. We're going to be looking for maybe one or two or three takeaways, you know, things you really want our listeners to remember. So Gabby, if you'd go ahead and start with us, for us uh, with those takeaways. Yeah. So a key takeaway for me when I'm working on beverages, especially when I'm working on more difficult beverages is that, you know, I'm a chef and I work for a flavor and spice company and that a lot of the alcohols that I actually love have things like juniper berry, have things like ginger, cinnamon, black pepper, tamut pepper, all these herbs and spices that are pretty familiar once you actually just step back and be like, oh, wait a minute, I'm actually familiar with these items. I just don't know that they were prominent in a different category of food. So like instead of food, it's now a beverage. And because it's in a beverage, it becomes just a little bit more alien. But when you step back, I have the palette here, and it is my smallest plug for our lovely little company, uh, McCormick Fona. Mm. The, the herbs and spices that are great to use in food are actually also great to use in drinks. So again, my key takeaway is that art is art, and being able to work with food and drinks at the same time and at the same level and complexity and passion I think is a big, big deal. So, you know, I love that I can work on both. And Analika, if you continue. Yes, I, I actually have two takeaways. One is, and we spoke about it, for me, a beverage base and a flavor will always go together. A flavor without a good beverage will not taste as magic or as delicious as it could be. It's really the combination of having a good beverage design developed with the best tasting flavors that make the, the flavor or the, the beverage experience pop and resonate and hopefully also stick in the market. A flavor cannot fix a beverage where the sweet acid ratio is not right. That's just a basic thing. First, make the beverage base delicious and then top noted even with more layering for that complete drink. Another takeaway for me, and that was really my experience within McCormick, being a technical food scientist, if you ever have the chance to educate yourself to the culinary direction, it really brings a lot of added value. So learning from a chef in a culinary class, add more salt, add more lemon juice to make the flavor come out. I was in a culinary class and they kept saying it, add more salt, add more lemon juice, and it definitely works. So when I taste my margarita and drinks, it's resonating. I hear the same chef telling me, add more salt, because salt also in a beverage makes that flavor just more complex, more pop. And then, of course, working with Chef Gabi, that is really the making that conclusion even stronger, because 
we are enriching each other so much, which you can't do just with a food science degree. It's really that art and, and inspiration and knowing about every raw material and where the material comes from and how that drink is designed and what that brand stands for that makes the storytelling and the beverage development complete. Great. All right. And finally, I know you guys have been waiting for these questions that I'm going to create for you off the cuff really quick. So we, we've talked about the two of you obviously working together, working closely together, you know, the partnership that you have, the connection that you have when it comes to food and mixology. I'm going to ask each of you to, based on the other's personality, mix a drink for them. So Gabby, if you'd mix a drink for Analika and Analika, if you do one for Gabby, let me know what's in it and what you would call it. Okay. If I were to make a drink for Annalika, I want to call it, she's from the Netherlands, so I, I would call it a, a windmill. And it would have uh, woody notes. Uh, it would have, I'm going to find some way to incorporate tulips into that drink, whether it's a, a bitter uh, flower note from an actual tulip. And also, uh, of course, give it complexity by adding that wood because I want to create a complex but light drink for her. But I will create her a windmill. Sounds good. I'll take one. I see a project coming, Gabby. I love <laughs> it. Now you put me on the spot. But for Gabby, I would create definitely an Uber purple drink. We worked on some project together and Uber is in its origin. So Uber is a, a purple colorant. It also has a specific, I would say, cereal type of note. It blends very nicely with plant-based drinks. So it could be a very good coffee. I would say Ethiopian coffee with an uber plant-based froth, milk layer, and then topping it up with some Timut pepper. Um, <laughs> but definitely it has to be purple with some bitter oaky notes. Awesome. I, I really do hope that turns into a project. And if so, I want credit. <laughs> so last question, promise. I was once told when I ordered, when I didn't know what to order a drink at the bar, that they were going to make me a drink that matched my personality, which was strong and fruity. So I want you guys to go ahead and you can even work together, make a drink based on our interaction. What would you make a drink for me? I would say I'm technical. I execute. Gabby can, can design. I, you know, um, so you want strong and fruity? I, that's what they told me. That's what they gave me. I do enjoy a nice a fruity beverage. Yeah, got it. Okay. Well, um, if you requested strong and fruity for me, um, and being that this is the summer, I really want to make you uh, a watermelon pina colada. Ooh. I got to tell you, we uh, we went to a farmer's market and we got this giant watermelon thinking that we were actually going to eat all of it. And we don't know what to do with it. We've made salads with it. We made, uh, We've grilled it. We've done everything to it. But then we were like, you know what, let's turn this into a drink. And when we paired it up with a little bit of coconut and a little bit of uh, pineapple and a decent amount of rum, suddenly we had a great, great, strong but fruity drink. So I hopefully I get to make you a uh, watermelon pina colada. Nailed it. I'm, I'm in. I'll take two. You had me at a lot of rum. <laughs> so let's go ahead and finish up, you guys. That's it for the Flavor University podcast. I'm Corey Doucette, and I'd like to thank our special guests, Gabby Quintana and Annalik Van Oy. Thanks for listening, and until next time, the flavor of McCormick Fona is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it.